Listen, there's this mysterious place in Sweetwater, Tennessee. It's southeastern Tennessee. And it's a tourist trap. If you drive on I-75 between Atlanta and Chattanooga, you'll for sure see the signs. Um, visit the Lost Sea. I remember as a kid, my grandparents lived in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is near Chattanooga. We lived in North Georgia, and we'd often run between there to visit. And I'd always see these signs, visit the Lost Sea. The Lost Sea is this giant underground lake that exists in, I forget the name of the actual caverns. The caverns are the Craighead Caverns. And the Lost Sea is this giant underground lake. At one time, it was thought to be the largest underground lake in the world. Now, Wikipedia says it's America's largest non-subglacial underground lake. And it's the second largest non-subglacial underground lake in the world. I don't know what that means. But it's big. It's a big lake. And when I was in third grade, my class took an overnight field trip to see the Lost Sea. We spent the night in the cave. And we got to go spelunking through the, to the passages. Yeah, can you imagine letting third graders do that now? That was the 90s, man. Things were crazy. But for real, we did this, and we went on this glass-bottom boat. And, and I'll never forget that. I was kind of a bigger kid, still kind of a big guy. But, man, I got wedged in some of those little passages in those caves, and I thought I was never getting out, you know. <laughs> but the thing that sticks with me the most is at one point in the night, the tour guides and our teachers told us to turn out their, our flashlights. So we turned out our flashlights. And they turned out every light in the cave. And as a child, you feel like you're in the middle of the earth. We're probably only, I don't know, a few hundred feet below the surface. But I'm telling you, that was a darkness, like they talk about in Exodus, a darkness that could only be felt. I mean, it was spooky to feel that way. And, and for some of y'all, you're like sweating. It brings up horror movies. You know, you're like, this is your worst imaginable nightmare. But it's cemented in my mind, and, and as I've thought about it this week in light of this sermon, you know, human beings weren't created to live in the dark. I mean, we just don't like it. You get spooked carrying your garbage out to the trash can, you know. Uh, we don't like the dark. You can't see what's happening in the dark. We were made to live in light. In our passage, Paul says something really similar about the Christian life. He says Christians aren't created to live in the dark. Of course, he has something else in mind besides darkness as the total absence of light where you can't even see your hand in front of your face and you're just sure some monster is coming up from the caves to get you. He has darkness in mind that is the absence of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We'll see that next week in verse 9. We know what he's talking about, though. It's a darkness that we see all around us every day. The darkness that pervades the news. Just some really despicable things happened this week in the world. And every week. This week wasn't all that unusual. This world's a messed up place. It's dark. The darkness is in our schools. You see it on people's faces. It's in our homes. And unfortunately, this darkness is even in our hearts. But in this passage, I want to encourage you. This is really supposed to be an upbeat message, but I got the feeling that for whatever reason, maybe it's going to hit somebody square between the nose. But here's what I want you to know today. Every Christian is called to leave the life in the dark behind and live in the light. i say that again. Every Christian is called to leave the life in the dark behind and live in the light. 
So as we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've, we've really seen how this entire second half of the letter, starting in chapter 4, is really just an elaboration of Ephesians 4.1, where Paul says that he urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. We saw that meant that we were supposed to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace and promote the upbuilding of the body with the spiritual gifts we've been given. Then we saw that this calling meant pursuing a kind of personal holiness that was prompted by the Spirit's work in our hearts, where we took off the old self, which was corrupted by deceitful desires, and we renewed in our minds, and then we put on the new self, which was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Today, we're going to continue seeing what this walk is all about. What does it mean to live up to the calling to which we've been called? And as we do, I really want to make the point, you know, most preachers don't know when to stop. We just keep going around and around in circle. We, we talk about it. You've got to know how to land the plane. And sometimes we don't. And it would be tempting to read the Apostle Paul, and he, you know, we've, the way we've taken it, we've been in chapter 4 and now chapter 5 for, for many weeks, and it's easy to just say, hey, Paul, we get the point. Land the plane. But what he does in this passage is not just belabor the point or reiterate. Instead, he tries to draw in an illustration, you know, that helps us to really put a picture together with all of these principles that he's thrown at us. And the illustration he uses is one that's pervasive throughout the Bible. And it's the dichotomy between darkness and light. You know, it's right in the first pages of the Bible. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day and he called the darkness night. I mean, this is the way God works. He's always creating these clear lines of separation between what is good and what's evil. There's no gray with God. It's light or dark. It's good or bad. It's evil. It's righteousness. And so Paul brings up this illustration to really try to focus the Ephesians' minds on what he's really after. He wants to help them understand that they're supposed to be a clear line of distinction between who they are in Christ and who is there in the world. I like what one commentator, Ben Witherington the third, the third, not this first or second, this is the third Ben Witherington. He said this, he said, the Christian witness is what's at stake here because our witness depends on the church being, and then this is key, appearing to be something distinctive, a city of light, set on a hill. Now, it's not enough, and we've experienced this in our personal lives. We've experienced it over Thanksgiving dinner. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then get the credit for that, is it? People are always watching, seeing if we live up to the identity we profess. And Paul says if we're going to live up to the identity we profess, we've got to leave behind the life in the dark and learn to live in the light. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is the conduct of life in the dark. He identified this in verses 3 and 4. He says, but, let's, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. This is Ephesians 5.3. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Listen, if you're going to leave behind the life in the dark and learn to live in the light, you've got to understand what the conduct of life in the dark is all about. The first thing Paul says, it's improper moral behavior. Improper 
moral behavior. And this triad of sins, it's three of them, tied together in a close group, begins with sexual immorality. And, you know, it's an uncomfortable sin to talk about in church. You know, makes middle schoolers giggle, makes adults cringe. But, man, isn't it devastating to the lives of those who've experienced it? Oh, it's a terrible, terrible thing. The Greek word, porneia, means aberrant sexual conduct. You know, sometimes we want to, I don't know, narrow it down to sort of remove its sting. Just say, maybe this is talking about relationships that happen outside of the marriage covenant. Or maybe it's relations that happen before you're married. But really what Paul is trying to draw their attention to is not any one particular sin, but a whole category of aberrant behaviors, things that are just beyond the pale of what's right and appropriate and the relationships between men and women. This is sexual immorality. But this is not just existing alone by itself in the dark, sexual immorality, though, I mean, we all know it thrives in the darkness and hiddenness. But he also points to all manner of impurity. All manner of impurity. This sin recalls that ethical, moral, and religious cleanliness that God required of his people Israel. You remember the Old Testament commands of how they're supposed to enter God's presence only in a very prescribed way. First, to wash their hands, to bring a sacrifice, to enter in to the outer court, but never in beyond that because of the holiness of God and their personal sin. But what Paul means when he talks about all manner of impurity is not ritual impurity. And this is kind of a big deal. Not ritual impurity, but actual impurity. Actual moral stain, moral filth. Right? The things that are, Paul says, improper for those who are called saints. Greek word for saints means holy ones. So he's contrasting this uncleanliness with holiness. The same categories that would be used in the Old Testament. But what Paul is after is not just their ability to enter into the throne room of God, but their witness in the world. And then, of course, the third is something Paul's already talked about. It's covetousness. He mentioned it back in Ephesians 4.19 when he said that the Gentiles were greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the week we saw that passage, we saw that this greed was a desire to get what they want when they wanted it, regardless of what anybody said. Their, their desire for sin was insatiable. They never experienced a fill of it, but just kept coming back for more and more and more and more and more. And Paul says that this is the kind of conduct that characterizes life in the dark. Insatiable, sexual, and impure appetite. And I got to believe that when the church in Ephesus gathered together to hear this letter read, to have the messenger expound upon it, uh, they would have known exactly what Paul was talking about in the same way that we do. And their culture was full of people whose lust fueled their religion, the way they worshiped their gods, the way they related to their neighbors in the marketplace, down to the very basic way they lived their lives. And fortunately, it doesn't take a big leap to apply this passage to us. I mean, thanks to the sexual revolution in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, there are literally almost no constraints 
or boundaries beyond which one should not be encouraged, cheered on, and celebrated to go. Everything is wide open. You do what feels right. Because of that, you, you go to the grocery store, you check out in the line, magazines are filthy, impure. Turn on the TV, filthy and impure. But if Paul says that's what marks the culture, that's what it looks like to live life in the dark with improper moral behavior, uh, it's pretty clear that he, has, he, he wants nothing to do with that when it comes to the church. I mean, in verse 3, he says, These things must not even be named among you. Must not even be named. They're so beyond the boundaries of what is appropriate in the church that I think what he's trying to get at is these things shouldn't be topics of conversation among you. And there should be no reason that when a person out there thinks of these things, they associate you guys with it. This is so beyond who you are in Christ as those who are called saints that there's no way that these two things should be brought together. This is improper moral behavior that is totally outside the bounds of what's right for you. It's life in the dark. But beyond that moral behavior, he also talks about speech that he says is out of place. Speech that's out of place. And he picks that up in verse 4. He says, There must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Now, if you've been working through this with us, you know this speech thing is a recurring theme for Paul. He seems to come back to it again and again and again because our words say something about us. You know, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So words are important. I mean, already Paul has said in chapter 4 that the Ephesians should speak the truth to their neighbors. Put aside all falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor. And in verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what's good for the moment, for building up. But here in chapter 5, I love this. Yeah, I, want to, I want it to be practical. You know? And so the, chapter 4 was good because it's practical. It tells us what we should do. We should use our speech to tell the truth to each other, be transparent, open and honest. We should use our speech to build each other up. But here what Paul has in mind is not so much the effect it has on the community, but how our speech makes us totally different from the world. I mean, you think about speech, we're going to see this next week when Paul talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But one distinctive way of speech that marks out the church is like our vocabulary and our doctrinal affirmations. Those things that we sing about. You know, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You know, nobody in our world uses the word thy anymore. But it means something to us. And so that's a unique kind of Christian speech. But what Paul's talking about here is not doctrinal, theological language that outsiders have to learn, have to be taught. What he means is sort of everyday, run-of-the-mill speech that sort of just gets thrown around. You saw he, he talks about filthy speech, uh, you know, the dirty jokes, the kinds of conversations that they say happens in locker rooms. I was never an athlete, so I never was privy to those locker room conversations. The kind of conversations that happen on girls' night when you're gossiping, when you're talking about the things you've done and seen. Paul says those have no place in the church. Those are out of place among you. Our conversation has to be different from that. But more significantly, Paul draws our attention 
to foolish talk. And this is kind of a challenge. Foolish talk. There are different ways, different translations put it differently. I think what Paul means is what it just literally says. The talk of fools. And from the Bible's perspective, fools are the people who lack a godly discernment about the world. They fail to see things from God's perspective. And when Paul warns us against foolish talk, what I think he means is the kind of talk that distracts us from what's most important. Matters of faith. How our walk with the Lord is going. And this is something I'm super guilty of as a pastor. I know that when I'm around you, I'm supposed to say things like, well, hey, tell me, how's your walk with the Lord going? But that kind of feels awkward sometimes. You know, I'd just rather ask you, what you been doing? What's life been like? Been watching any baseball? You know, stuff like that. But that's kind of foolish, isn't it? If I'm a pastor who will one day give an account for your souls, it would behoove me to know how your soul is doing. That's foolish for me to spend any amount of time with you and not ever get down to what matters most. How's your walk with Jesus going? What's been bothering you? How can I pray for you? But I hope you know he's not just writing to pastors. He's talking to the church. Not just foolish talk for me. Foolish talk for us. When was the last time we had conversations about things that matter most? Foolish talk is talk that fails to recognize it. That's glad to just talk about the weather, the news, coronavirus, sports. And never gets down to really what matters most. The world talks about sports, talks about the news, talks about coronavirus. They're not talking about the state of their souls and how their walk with Jesus is going. But that marks us out as distinct. And it's obvious that we're distinct because when you look at the popular culture, and for me, I, I tend to watch TV occasionally, you watch shows, Big Bang Theory, The Office reruns, you start to notice a pattern of speech, a certain comedic, I don't know, way. And it seems like every punchline hinges on some kind of sarcastic put-down of another person. And a lot of the jokes, you know, are risque and off-color. And, and that is sort of pervasive. The, the studios have incentive of communicating on TV in a way that people understand. You know, it's like the lowest common denominator, lowbrow. They make the most money that way. And so if, you know, we're watching TV and that happens to be the most human interaction, if you want to call it that, human interaction you get in a day, you start to pick up on that way of being, that way of talking, that way of thinking. And I see it in myself, that I get to be sharp. I make jokes to my kids and my wife, things that I normally wouldn't want to say, but, you know, been watching it, and that kind of just came to mind. Paul says we got to be different. Don't parrot what you see on TV. Don't joke in the way they joke. Get down to what matters most. If indeed we have been united with Christ, and our hope is in the age to come, then we got important things to talk about when we're together. Paul says we shouldn't be filled with filthy talk, coarse jesting, talk of fools. Instead, our mouths should be filled with thanksgiving. Right, the kind of stuff I, I got to hear yesterday at the clothes closet. You know, we, we, it was hot. Y'all know how hot it has been. And it's hot at like 8 a.m. And so somebody asked me to pray that we'd have a breeze. And I did 
thinking in the back of my mind, this guy crazy. You know, <laughs> it's going to be hot. Lord, I don't want to put you to the test. You know, your will be done, right? But then later, a breeze started coming up. I heard several people say, wow, thank you, God, for that breeze. You know, and that's, it's a, a sort of trivial thing. But it only seems trivial because we're not in the habit of doing it over minor things. And so we have to retrain ourselves, not to talk and think the way the world does, but to have our minds and our mouths recalibrated to reality. That in every moment, our God is active for us, giving us good gifts. And we ought to be aware of it and thankful for it, even going so far as to express it. So that's what Paul's after. He says there's a certain type of speech that's just out of place among Christians. But thanksgiving is always appropriate. So, let's say you decide, okay, I'm done with this life in the dark, but I'm sort of having second thoughts. I kind of have gotten into the habit of talking that way, and my moral makeup kind of looks like that. Are you sure it's worth it? Well, I think so. You're going to want to see the cost of a life in the dark. That comes in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, you may be sure of this, that everyone, and he just repeats the same things as before, Everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All the cost of living in the dark is high. Paul says the person who's sexually immoral, impure, and covetousness, which I don't know if you got that, but a person who's covetous is really an idolater because what they want, whether it's a thing or a person or an experience, has become all-encompassing to them. They want it more than anything else. They've got to have it right now. Because of that, that thing, whatever it is, could be, a, 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 I guess, like an, a good thing even, like time with family or something. When you want that more than anything else, it becomes elevated above the place of God. And so it puts that thing as what promises you the greatest good in life, which is clearly a job that only God can do. And so it is idolatry. But Paul says the person who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous might get what they're after, but they're not going to get much else. He says they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And this inheritance is a blessing that Paul's already talked about in chapter 1 and 2. It's a blessing that comes to us on the basis of our faith in Jesus and our union with him. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that Christians were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, until we gain possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we talked about this early on in our series, that you and I have a hope stored up in heaven, a living and reigning Jesus. And we know that whatever our life looks like, whatever messes we find ourselves in, whatever troubles we face, there is something good laid up for us. It's unshakable. We've been sealed by the Spirit. It belongs to us. It's got our name written on it. It's eternal life face-to-face -face with God. Paul says sexually Im immoral people and impure people, covetous people, they can't lay claim to that same promise, regardless of what they say about themselves as far as their religious affiliation. Say you're a Christian, but hold up. And Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, no, sorry, he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
And he puts together another list. He's got three sins here. You know, I tend to think these th are three big sins that sort of everything else sort of flows from those. But he gives a more extensive list in Galatians 5. He says in Galatians 5.19, and this is one of those passages that I find myself going to again and again because without a doubt, if I go any period of time without doing a checkup with God, I can run my eye down this list and find something that I need to repent over. So it might be one you want to bookmark in your Bible. But this is what Paul says. He says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list, isn't it? That last one always gets me. Things like these. It's a catch-all. So you think, well, I've not done any sorcery lately. Well, hey, stuff like it counts too, Brad. Don't try to weasel your way out of this, punk. You know you're guilty as charged. And that's what Paul says. He says that, you know, People who live their lives according to these patterns will not inherit the kingdom of God. They have no place in the kingdom where Christ rules. That's a scary thought for me. Really scary. But then that fear sort of butts up against one thing that I'm kind of proud of, which is my modern, western, enlightened, moral sensibility. You know what I mean? Like, I think I'm a good person who's able to evaluate whether a person has lived their life well or lived their life wrongly. And these vice lists was what commentators call them, vice lists. These vice lists sort of butt up against that. You know, maybe you're with me. That it's hard to equate some of these sins with the others. For example, there are things here in this list that we just read that are totally crazy and absolutely sins. And then I think like about people I know who struggle with anger or who like to play the devil's advocate but end up causing divisions in their relationships. And I don't know. I struggle with that sometimes. I think maybe, can, is God a stickler like that? Does he really care if I have a fit of anger and sort of yell at my kids in the same way that he cares about the person who's over here practicing sorcery? I mean, God is a God of love, right? Surely he sees beyond and he sees the real issues at heart. Is he really like that? Well, yeah, he is. I mean, Paul says that that kind of attitude that weighs and evaluates what the Bible says about black and white, light and dark, good and bad, sin stuff is evidence that you have been deceived. He says, don't be deceived with empty words because it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You want to know why God's going to judge the world? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. That's scary. Now these empty words that Paul talks about, these are the promises and assurances that we make to each other. That God understands what we're going through. Like one pastor put it, that God's patience suffers all things. That his grace pardons everything. And that people cannot be perfect in the world. The reason I want to read you this quote, uh, I would tell you to go buy the 
best-selling book that that comes from. But this guy's name was Jean Diodati. He was an Italian pastor in Geneva, Switzerland in the 16th and 17th centuries. And his evaluation of these assurances we give ourselves, I mean, might as well be written in the 21st century. It's like the same thing. Hey, pe Brad, people aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect, man. To err is to be human. This is how it goes. But over time, we make ourselves these promises that God understands why we would react that way. And over time, we look each other in the face and we make peace with the sin we see. And eventually, whatever is acceptable in the world becomes acceptable in the church. And so what we would never, you know, want to see our children do, we sort of turn a blind eye to the people who sit in the pews next to us. And clearly, again, Paul wants no part in that. That's why he's warning them again and again and again about the manner of life God's called them to live. Because no matter what we tell ourselves, this kind of permissiveness, this moral permissiveness, where we cut each other some slack because we know we're all human after all, is not evidence of moral enlightenment, open-mindedness, or like a commendable, tolerant spirit. It's a satanic distraction from the distinct way of life to which Christians have been called. That's all it is. If you got your discipleship guide, I was a little late in getting it printed today. I don't know if it was available to you when you came in. But there's a question in there this week that will really challenge you to think about that. Really challenge you to ask yourself, what does it mean to be deceived? And where does that happen in Scripture? And I think you'll find, if you do any amount of digging... That Satan loves to deceive, and he's been at it since the beginning of time, trying to make God's people doubt that what God said is true. And so when it comes to evaluating the rightness or wrongness of a moral decision, like the ones we're talking about here, it really doesn't matter, and I got a list of people, it doesn't matter what Supreme Court justices say is right or wrong, what politicians say is right or wrong. Does it say what psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians say is right or wrong? Does it say, doesn't matter what columnists, journalists, pundits, talk show hosts, radio disc jockeys, doesn't matter what they say is right or wrong. Doesn't matter what well-meaning Christian moms and dads say is right or wrong. And just to be flat out honest with you, I hope you'll evaluate me by this standard. It doesn't matter what I say is right or wrong. What matters is that God's Word says He hates sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And those who practice them have a definite meeting point with the fiery hot wrath of God. It's just what the Bible says. They're destined for the day of His wrath. So because of that, the cost of living in the dark is exceptionally high. We're not talking about excuses, pats on the backs, turning the other eye. We're talking about a date with God. And so it's unsurprising that Paul would conclude to people he loves as much as anybody could love another person with this inference. Therefore, 
do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I mean, given everything that we've seen about Paul's view of moral behavior, it's obvious that what he would call them out of life in the dark. I mean, otherwise, he'd just be like me up here beating you up, talking to you about things I already know you agree with. But there's a point. Yeah, yeah, Paul, we get it, we get it. You've been making this point over and over and over and over again. But the thing that Christians are always in danger of doing is adjusting to what's easy. Because it's hard to live as light in a dark world. It's hard to talk about the way we speak to each other and, and not kind of giggle like, hey, you know, I'm your pastor and should ask you how your walk with the Lord's going. But no, that's what Paul would have us do. He would have us think clearly and consistently about the way we live because we've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. I mean, it's what Paul's already talked about in Ephesians 2. He's just sort of saying it in a different way. There he said they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work. Here they are, among the sons of disobedience, among whom we, all of us, once lived, following the desires of our flesh, or by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Y'all know I messed that up. Y'all are going to have to hold me accountable to that scripture memory. But here's the important part. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That's what Paul wants us to know. The reason why it makes no sense for us to crawl down into a deep, dark cave and make our home there is because we weren't created for that. We were created to live in the light. The problem is when we adjust to what's easy, when we go with the culture, we do something that's totally incomprehensible from God's perspective. How could a person who was once dead, but who's now been made alive, go about their day and then get to bedtime and go back to the empty grave where they got out of and get back in it and sleep there? How could a person who's been thrown into a pit, no light available, but then thrown a torch, snuff it out? makes no sense. A person in the dark wants to be the light, and that's who we are called to be. I mean, the Apostle John said it like this. He said, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins. That's it. God's light Anybody who says they know God, but don't live in the light, is a liar. Truth's not in them. This is the reality. The consistent testimony is the, of the New Testament is that those who are in Christ have experienced a personal, radical reorientation of their lives. Who they once were has ceased to be. From death to life, from dark to light. They've put off their old self, corrupted by deceitful desires, been renewed in, the, in their minds by the Spirit, put on the new self, which is Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says in Colossians 3, they have, he says like this, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says in Romans 1, 
Because of that, should they go on sinning so that grace could abound? That's kind of nonsense, guys. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. So this morning, I want to ask you, are you living in the dark or are you living in the light? That's abstract. Let me put some concrete stuff to it. Would you say that your life is discernibly different from your unbelieving neighbors? Not just what you claim to be, but is what you appear to be light? Because that's their up. doesn't matter what a person claims. Jesus says that at the end, many people say to me, Lord, Lord. And of course, he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. What matters is, does the conduct of our lives consist in a daily walk that bears out the fruit of light, which Paul is going to say next week is goodness, righteousness, and truth. So ask yourself, is your life discernibly different from your unbelieving family and friends? See, I think this is where this morning, as I was trying to finish my sermon, God really got a hold of me. Because at the end of this passage, I was going to try to preach all the way to verse 14. Y'all are glad I didn't do that. But at the end of 14, Paul says, he quotes this. He says, I'll read it to you. He says, thus it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The interesting thing, we're going to see it next week, is that Paul says, thus it says, like he's introducing some kind of quotation from the Old Testament. And there are a couple of echoes and allusions to passages in Isaiah, but it's not a word-for-word quote from any Old Testament passage. So a lot of scholars believe that he's quoting like a praise song that the Ephesians would have known and loved. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And the reality of it is, is that I was th- as I was thinking about my conclusion and how I wanted to conclude this thing, I thought about what that must mean. That it's possible for some people who believe they are living openly and honestly before the Lord and others, i.e. in the light, to actually be deluded and confused, or what Paul would say is deceived. And that it'd be possible that even maybe today as I preached about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, crude jesting, foolishness, that maybe the light of God's word would shine like a lamp into your light. Like when I was in the dark cave and I flipped back on my flashlight and what was hidden to me all of a sudden was exposed. That perhaps this morning God was going to use his word, not anything I did, but the Holy Spirit would take the word of God and apply it into your heart, shining lights into places that you didn't even know were down there. And that what he was going to say to you is awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ is here ready to shine on you. See, the reality of it is, is that it doesn't matter what the course of your life has been. Many of us come to points where we have great clarity about who we are and what we've done. And that can be a very good thing. We call it conviction. Conviction. 
that the Holy Spirit makes you aware of sin in your heart in order not to condemn you, but in order to forgive you, to assure you of the forgiveness that's yours in Christ and to set you free from that bondage to sin. And I just wondered if maybe today God didn't want to do that for you. That you know you're a Christian. You're a faithful Christian. You love the Lord. But as I've been talking, the Holy Spirit's been bringing to mind maybe patterns of speech that don't define a life in Christ. They're out of place in your life, knowing who you are in Jesus. That make more sense for the guy who hangs out down at the shop all day. And you need to get rid of it. Painfully, slowly, day by day, allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to change the way you speak. Maybe there are hidden sins in your life. Closest people to you don't even know about them. You keep them in the dark where they belong. It's shameful to even speak of them openly. But today's the day where you say, I'm done. I'm waking up from my sleep and slumber. I'm ready for Christ to shine in my life and give me freedom from hidden sin. You know, under normal circumstances, I'd ask Mike to come up, maybe Amy. They'd lay a wonderful little atmosphere musically for us. I'd stand up here and I'd ask you to come forward and I'd take your hand symbolically saying, hey, I'm in your corner, here to fight with you, here to fight for you as you do battle with your sin. But now we've got social distancing. So I'll be down here, and if you feel comfortable with that, and you want me to pray with you, and I mean it, to be in your corner, come and talk to me. But I had another vision of it, how it might play out. That maybe, since nobody here is under any illusion that anybody else is perfect, that maybe we just go out on a limb here. And when I asked the next question, people would respond by raising their hands. And, and it'd be a question like this. Forgot to highlight it. Let me find it. If you'd be willing to admit, okay, this is the question I want you to think about. If you'd be willing to admit that there are patterns of behavior in your life, sins, that don't belong there, and you're ready to shine a light on them and come out of the dark with them, would you raise your hand? There are patterns of sin in your life that you know don't belong. Okay, keep them up. There are patterns of sin, however big, however small, things that the Holy Spirit's brought to your mind today. All right, look at me. Y'all looking at me? I want you to hear God's word this morning. Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, you are healed. Amen. Do you believe that? He died so that that pattern of sinful behavior in your life wouldn't have to characterize you anymore. He's ready to set you free to live for Him. Listen, y'all all raised your hand. I'm in your corner now. 
And next time I see you and it's convenient, I'm going to remind you, hey, that morning when I asked that question, you raised your hand. How's that been going? Is there anything specific I can do to help you? Please be honest with me. And at the same token, I raised my hand. Next time you find an opportunity, ask me if you can encourage me in my fight against sin. I'll be the first to tell you how you can. I love y'all so much. It's so good to be back with you. And isn't God good? Don't you sense the Lord working? Man, I do. Will you pray with me?